We are in Ephesians 5 right now. And, uh, the reason why we're in Ephesians 5. So first time I ever officiated a wedding was in my hometown. I was still in seminary, so early 20s, wet behind the ears, young and arrogant enough to think that this would be a good uh, passage to use for our wedding, the little homily or message in the, little of, in the middle of the wedding ceremony. Um, I was marrying two people that I'd grown up with. Uh, the young lady I'd known virtually my entire life. The, the boy I, I'd known, the young man I'd known since we were in fourth grade. And that meant that everybody in that church was either somebody who'd grown up with me or someone who had watched me grow up. And so imagine that, get that in your head as you listen to these words that I read at the start of the wedding. Ephesians 5.25 says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she might be holy and without blemish. Now, if you don't know this passage, you're probably thinking, oh, that sounds pretty appropriate. But if you know this passage, you know that that's not all there is to it. And I read the whole thing. I read the part that talks about wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord and about how the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. Again, young and arrogant enough to think that in five to eight minutes I could explain that well to people sitting there, many of whom probably were thinking, what is, where is he going with this? Now, what I tried to do was I tried to say that headship and submission and those words do not mean that the husband's always right, the husband always gets to make the decisions, the husband always gets his way. Side note, if I had written the Bible or any other man had written the Bible, that's the way it would read, right? But that's not what it means. Submission simply means the wife comes into the relationship with her own agenda, just like all people, but she says, if this is gonna work, I've got to put we ahead of me. I know there are things that I wanna change about him. I'm gonna set that aside. I'm gonna focus on what is good for our relationship. I'm not gonna be in competition with him. We are a team, and I'm gonna do whatever I have to do to make this work. Whereas the, the idea of headship is not, is not a picture of privilege. I'm the head. I can do what I want. No. Is that, is that the way Jesus was with his church? Of course not. No, the idea of headship is responsibility, not privilege. It's what it boils down to. And when I realized this, boy, it just took my breath away. I, as a husband and a father, I will stand judgment before God someday, as we all will. But part of my judgment is I'm gonna have to give an accounting for what I did for my family. That I, nobody else has this responsibility but above me. I am where the buck stops in terms of protecting, providing for, and ensuring the flourishing of my wife and my kids. I can't choose Christ for them, but I can, I can do whatever I have to do to create an environment in the home where they, are, where they are nurtured physically, emotionally, and spiritually, and where they see an example of Christ-likeness so that they are more likely to choose the path of Jesus. That's what I'll have to give accounting for, and that's what it means to be the head. Now, I don't know how good I did in my first wedding explaining that. I doubt I did well at all. People were very kind afterwards. They came up and spoke to me and said I did a good job, which I knew at the time was, you know, Berger, we thought you were gonna fall on your face, but you managed to make it through. Way to go, not bad. But one comment that I'll never forget was, a, a, again, a young woman who had graduated the same year we did, and she came up to me and she said, good job, I still don't like that passage. And it kind of, 
got me flat-footed because I had literally, growing up in the churches I had, had literally never heard somebody say, I don't like this part of the Bible. And so I didn't know what to say. I wish I could go back in time because this is what I'd like to say to her. Listen, I've known you your whole life. I think I can understand you enough to say, it's not the Bible you have a problem with, it's what people have done with it you have a problem with. Because we can all see, if we're honest, that there have been times when men, especially preachers, have taken this passage and they've misused it as, as a club to, to uh, punish women, to make them seem second best, to make them feel like they're inferior, and to make men seem like we could have whatever we want. That's not what the passage means, but that's what it's been used to apply. And, and so I say all that to say this. I didn't even get to the hard part of this passage, and that's verse 32, and that's what I wanna talk about today. Verse 32 after he's been talking about husbands laying down their lives for their wives and wives submitting to their husbands, then he says, this mystery is profound and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Now what on earth does that mean? It means that whatever an ideal husband is supposed to do, that's what Christ has already done. That Jesus is the ultimate husband. Even though he was never married in this life, his bride is his church and what when you see a marriage that's working, that's working the way that it should, what you are seeing in flesh and blood is a little picture of Christ and his church, the future of Christ and his church. That's what Paul is saying here. Now, we're starting this series, Why Church, today, and, and the reason why I'm so excited about this series is, unfortunately, among Christians, there's, this has never been more true than it is today, there's this idea that the church is not that important. This idea, in fact, that the church is sort of optional. And I'm talking about Christians. You don't expect non-Christians to think the church is important, but you should expect Christians to. On the other hand, though, there's so many Christians who will say, yeah, you know, I'm glad the church exists. I remember the church I grew up in and how they introduced me to Christ. I don't go to church much anymore. And when you, you talk to them, you can tell they're behind their, what they're saying, what they're really saying is, you know, I don't, I don't really regret it either. I don't really miss it. I don't see what relevance it has for my life. And in fact, when you talk to other people, you find increasingly, so many people who would say it's more than that. It's, it's that the church has wounded me. The church has hurt me in some way in the past. And I, nothing, I'm gonna talk about this every week because it's a serious issue, but I don't ever wanna say anything that seems to diminish or dismiss people like that because that pain is some of the most profound pain you'll ever experience. It's, it's maybe second only to the pain of being abused by a parent is you've got a church that's supposed to be your, your place of spiritual nurture and someone in the church damages you or the church itself hurts you. And what I wanna say if you're in that position or if in any way you look at, at God's church, and I mean capital C, I don't just mean First Baptist Conroe, I mean capital C, the church across denominations, what I tell you is what you're seeing is that's what people have done with God's church. That's not God's church. That's what people have done with it. So these next seven weeks, we're gonna talk about what the Bible actually says about the church, starting with today, this idea of the church as Christ's bride. Because it's something, it's a term that's used throughout the scriptures, and yet I bet most of you have never really thought about what it means and why we are called the bride of Christ. What it tells us is that Jesus will never give up on his church. He still loves his church, he still esteems his church with the same white hot love that he had on the day that he spoke those words we looked at last week to, P to Peter. Upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So how do we know that he still feels the same? Three things. Number one, Jesus died for his bride. 
I grew up in a part of Texas that was heavily Catholic. A lot of, uh, you know, a lot of immigrants to that part of Texas were Czech, and then Hispanic immigrants came in later, and so there's a very uh, strongly Catholic influence in that part of the state. So most of my friends, about probably roughly half of my friends, went to St. Joseph Catholic Church there in, in my hometown. And the interesting thing is I look back and remember my upbringing, my spiritual upbringing, is how many things we did as non-Catholic Christians to differentiate ourselves from our Catholic neighbors. For instance, in the church I grew up in, little Baptist church out in the country, we never had Christmas Eve service or Good Friday service. Why? Because those were Catholic things. In fact, I never even heard the term Advent until I was an adult. That was a Catholic thing. We didn't talk about that kind of stuff. That's what Catholics do. We don't do that. Uh, it wasn't just us Baptists. Uh, my grandparents on my dad's side were Methodists, and I remember visiting them one time, and Grandpa was upset about something. He told us the story of how the previous Sunday, the, the minister of their church had gotten up for a communion. They took communion every Sunday, and he, he called them this time. He, he said, today I want you to come to me and take the communion from my own hand. And my grandpa was really upset about that because he said, we're not Catholics, that's what Catholics do. Now I tell you all of that to say this. One thing we told ourselves was, you know, Catholics believe that the church can save you. That's why they go to mass all the time. But we're different. We believe that it's a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, that you have to accept Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. Nobody ever stopped and said, okay, where are those terms found in the Bible? Because they're actually not. Those are terms that we've made up to sort of make the idea of coming to Christ seem more understandable. I'm not saying they're bad. I'm just saying it was pretty silly of us to act arrogant when we made up our own terms. Now, here's what we got right. The church can't save you. Baptist church can't save you. Catholic church can't save you. Methodist, Episcopalian, no matter what you want to name, no church can save you. No church ritual can save you. Whether you're taking, uh, taking the communion from the hand of a priest or getting baptized by a Baptist minister, none of that can save you. There's only one thing that can save you, and that's the blood of Jesus, and that's you uh, repenting of your sins and calling upon him for forgiveness. And receiving that free gift of grace. That has to happen, no matter what denomination you grow up in. I agree with that. But in our self-righteousness, in our desire to prove ourselves better than our Christian neighbors who went to a different kind of church, here's what we did. We overplayed our hand. And what happened was a whole generation or more of Christians grew up, not just in my church, but basically across evangelicalism, that so emphasized the personal relationship with Christ, which is real, that we diminished the importance of the church. If the Roman Catholic Church emphasizes how important the church is, we're gonna go the opposite direction. We're gonna make it seem like the church isn't necessary at all. Now, no one came out and said that. But how many people do you know who would say, yeah, I, I accepted Christ when I was this old. Yes, I got baptized. Yes, I'm a believer in Jesus. I know my sins are forgiven and I'm going to heaven when I die. Well, do you go to church? Yeah, every once in a while. How can that happen? When Jesus laid down his life for his bride. Verse 25 doesn't say that Jesus died for my sins or your sins, although he did. It says he died, he laid down his life for the church, his bride. Now, I think you and I can both agree that it's pretty rare in real life for a man to have the opportunity to literally die in place of his wife. That probably rarely happens. You may know some stories of some men who courageously defended their wives against some kind of an assault, and that's that's absolutely a husband's job. What we see much more commonly is a husband who has an opportunity 
to actually sacrifice some aspect of his own freedom or happiness because it will result in the flourishing or the protection or the blessing of his wife. And I can tell you an instance in my own life, and that's my own dad. My mom has been struggling with Alzheimer's for several years now. She's still at the stage where she knows us, but because of her condition, my dad can't go and do things that he wants to, he can't go to places, can't do things that he wants to do. Um, and, and I know the day will probably come when he can't even care for her anymore and will need some other solution. But for now, for years now, and, and for probably years to come, my dad is, is caring for his wife of 56 years. And anybody who knows them and has known them, especially those who knew them when my mom was still fully herself, Nobody would ever come to him and say, you know, your mind's still sharp and your body's still in good shape. You, you're wasting these good years of your life when you could be out doing things and, and experiencing things and traveling. I know you wanna travel, so why not, just, why not just forget about her? You've done enough. No one would ever say that because we know in sickness and in health, that's what love is. Love is not, love is not a really good-looking young couple walking down the beach holding hands. They may love each other, but you don't have any evidence of it because that could just be hormones. It probably is. <laughs> love is when it costs. Love is when it's hard. If you love Jesus, you're gonna love his church because he laid down his life for her. If you're committed to Christ, then you're committed to his bride. You would never say to anybody you truly love, you know, I really like you, but I can't stand your wife. I really like you, but I really wish you'd quit bringing that woman around because I don't have any use for her. If you said that, you wouldn't be that person's friend any long, much longer. In fact, you'd probably be picking up teeth, right? Understand how important the church is to Jesus. Number two, Jesus is transforming his bride. When I was saved, I was nine years old and I really was saved, but you know, in, in Baptist churches back then and, and still today and many, there really wasn't a process of discipleship. Nobody told me what to do next. Just keep on coming to church and watch what your elders do. A couple of years later, a, a summer missionary came to our church and she gave me a little booklet. It was called Survival Kit for New Christians. And so she told me, you, you do this every day and you're gonna grow in Christ. What it was was a guidebook on how to have a quiet time, how to spend time with God in prayer and study of the Bible. And I read the book, but I never actually started doing my quiet time. Got to college and decided to join the Baptist Student Union because I just knew one good decision I could make was I'm gonna deepen my walk with Christ. I'm gonna be around people who are committed to the Lord who are my own age. I'd never really had that. Didn't have a youth group growing up, a little bitty church. So I joined the BSU. That was a good experience. But one thing I learned is in BSU life, in young Christian life, quiet time was everything. You talk about your quiet time every day. That was how you showed people you were spiritual. I can remember people saying, you know, we'd be in the BSU playing ping pong or spades or whatever, or eating lunch, and somebody would say, you know, I had a big test today. I really wasn't prepared for it. I was really nervous, but when I woke up this morning, I didn't study. I had my quiet time because that's how spiritual I am. But even that didn't move me. I mean, I didn't start. Honestly, you know what made me start reading the Bible for myself? I met and started dating my future wife. And she was way ahead of me spiritually, knew way more of the Bible than I knew. And I was like, this girl is gonna dump me if she figures out how spiritually shallow I am. So I better bluff for a while until I can catch up. And I started reading the Bible every day. And even with that ridiculously shallow motive, 
God said, okay, you wanna read my word? All right, I don't care what causes you to do it. I'm glad you are. And he blessed me with growth and it's been a habit of mine ever since. Now, many of you probably have stories of how you first got into the habit of studying the Bible or praying or fasting or worshiping or whatever uh, spiritual discipline first grew you in Christ. And we talk about those disciplines all the time and we emphasize them. And anytime somebody wants to grow, they're like, I'm gonna start a new Bible study or I'm gonna spend 30 minutes a day in prayer. All of that's good. I don't wanna discourage any of that. Some of you are still floating on the, uh, on the, the, the excitement of a New Year's resolution in that, in that vein. Keep it up. But when you look at the New Testament, that's never how spiritual growth is described. Spiritual growth is never described in terms of, yeah, and one day Paul just said, I, I'm out of here, Corinthians. I'm gonna go off into the desert with the Old Testament scrolls and a journal. I'll see you in six months. No. Spiritual growth was always within the body of Christ. It was always as you were involved in the local congregation. Now why? Paul writes in verse 26, Jesus laid down his life that he might sanctify her. Sanctify is a, is a churchy sounding word, isn't it? You probably haven't used it all day. Sanctify means to make something holy. It's, it means to take a group of people or a person and to say, this is mine. I'm gonna make this group of people mine. I'm gonna make them reflective of my character so that when people meet them, they see me. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Now, later in the series, we're gonna talk about the specific reasons that being involved in a local church produces growth in your life, at least when a church works the way that it should. But for now, I wanna point out the two things Paul mentions here. He sanctifies her by two things. He says, by the washing with water and the word. Washing with water refers to baptism. Now, y'all should know me by now. I am not, I am not in any way endorsing any sense of superiority or, or that Baptists are better. We're gonna get to heaven someday and we're gonna see all the things we got wrong. But here's one thing I think Baptists got right. When you read the New Testament, book of Acts, every time somebody comes to Faith in Jesus, what happens? They get baptized. And they get baptized by immersion. How do I know that? Because that's what the word actually means. The Greek word baptizo, which is the only word used for baptism in the Bible, literally means to dunk underwater. Now why? Why were they baptized like that? Well, first of all, because Jesus was and he told us to, to do so as well, but secondly, as, as Paul writes in Romans 6, whenever some, a new believer or whenever a person is baptized, period, that's a person standing in front of their new brothers and sisters saying, the old me is dead and buried, now I'm a new person in Christ, raised to walk in newness of life. And now you're my family and you get to hold me accountable. I am asking you to hold me accountable if I ever go back to my old ways. You knew me before. If you ever see me acting like I acted before I met Jesus, then call me out on it. Love me enough to say, I'm worried about you. You're acting the way you used to before you met Jesus. That's what baptism is for. And by the way, that's why if you join our church and you're from a different denomination that doesn't emphasize baptism by immersion, that we want you to be baptized again. I've baptized people who have been believers in Jesus for decades. That baptism doesn't mean that there was anything wrong with their Christianity, it just means we believe this is a necessary step, something beautiful, a testimony you get to give to your new church family. And by the way, that's also why we emphasize joining the church at all. Sometimes people ask me, why do I need to join a church? Why do I need to join? Why can't I just come? I mean, I don't have to join McDonald's to buy a Big Mac. Well, with all due respect, that's a restaurant. And one of the problems with American Christianity 
is we treat the church like a restaurant instead of the bride of Christ. We show up and get our religious goods and services and we walk away saying, oh, that was a decent sermon. The music was nice. Yeah, the pew was okay. My kids seemed to have fun. I guess I'll come back. When instead, Jesus is standing there saying, this is my bride. If you're committed to me, you need to be committed to her. So washing with water, but another way he grows us is by the word. When you come to our worship services, you may notice that half of the service, approximately half the service is somebody standing up here talking about the scriptures. When you go to life group, if you haven't been to life group, I hope you'll join one, but when you go to life group, you'll find it's not just a bunch of people sitting around and talking about life, although that happens too. But there's always a Bible study, why? Because you can read the Bible for yourself and you should, but there is nothing that replaces corporate, communal time together in the word. Whether it's a called preacher standing up and saying, okay, here's what the Bible says, here's what it means for us, a preacher who knows you, by the way, who's able to uh, uh, speak into your life because he lives in the same community you do, or whether it's a, a group of people, 10 to 12, 15, 20, whatever, inside a room, and they're all wrestling with the scriptures together, and they're all asking questions, and they're all, they're all confronting the difficulties, and they're all giving their comments and their insights, and they're all living it out together in the week to come. That's how we grow. Now imagine you run into a guy sometime, some young man, and he's tall and he's muscular, and you say, are you some kind of athlete? And he says, yeah, I'm a quarterback. I'm a, you haven't heard of me yet, but I'm, I'm gonna be the greatest quarterback who ever lived. People are gonna forget all about Tom Brady when I'm done. And you say, oh, really? Well, what team do you play for? And he goes, team? I, who needs a team? I'm watching film, and I'm, I'm working out, and I'm, I'm gonna be the greatest there ever was. Now, how ridiculous is that? You can't be a quarterback if you don't have a team. There's no one to throw to. There's no one to block for you. In the same way, it's ridiculous to say, I believe in Jesus, I love him, and I wanna be everything I can be in Christ, and I wanna help him change the world, but I don't have any use for the church. He is transforming his bride, and you can never become all you want to be and all Christ meant for you to be unless you are part of his bride. Number three. Jesus has a future with his bride. Verse 27, he says, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. I, I get to do weddings and, and one of the best, I think my favorite part of every wedding ceremony is when the doors open in the back of the church and the bride walks in on the arm of her father. And the reason I love that is because I'm the one standing closest to the groom at that moment and I get to see his expression. Now, I remember that when that moment happened for me when I was the groom and I remember you know, Carrie standing there on the arm of her father and, and just this surge of joy and excitement and I was smiling so big, I felt like my face was gonna crack. And I look at these guys, these, these usually young, brides, young bridegrooms, but not always, and, and they're so excited. And that's the way it should be. The last wedding I did about a month ago and the groom standing next to me, big strong guy. Bride appears with her dad and I look over at him and he's weeping. I mean, he is a mess. Tears just flowing down his face. That got the mom started. They both started crying. Grandmas, I mean, everybody was just, I didn't know if we were gonna be able to go on, but he pulled it together. Jesus says that's the way it's gonna be when he sees us for the first time when we see him for the first time. 
I love 2 Corinthians 11 too. It says, for I feel a divine jealousy for you. This is Paul writing to a church just like ours, the Corinthian church. For I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. He's like, I'm, I'm the matchmaker who set you up with Jesus. And I'm gonna make sure, I wanna do everything I can to keep you pure, to keep you from being stolen away from someone, by somebody else so that on your wedding day, you can be perfect for him because that's what he deserves. Jesus in his parables about the second coming consistently referred to it as a wedding feast. And then in Revelation 19.7, there at the end of the New Testament, it reads, let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. That process of sanctification will be over someday and we will stand perfect before our bridegroom. And then Revelation 21, the Bible ends with the picture of the new Jerusalem, the people of God coming down out of heaven dressed as a bride for her husband. Some of you know who Joni Erickson Tata is. She was paralyzed as a young woman from the neck down and is to this day, but became a very powerful Christian writer. She wrote in one of her books about her wedding day, and I wanna read you this paragraph. I felt awkward as my girlfriend strained to shift my paralyzed body into a cumbersome wedding gown. No amount of corseting and binding my body gave me a perfect shape. The dress just didn't fit well. Then as I was wheeling into the church, I glanced down and noticed that I'd accidentally run over the hem of my dress, leaving a greasy tire mark. My paralyzed hands couldn't hold the bouquet of daisies that lay off center on my lap, and my chair, although decorated for the wedding, was still a big clunky gray machine with belts, gears, and ball bearings. I certainly didn't feel like the picture-perfect bride in a bridal magazine. I inched my chair closer to the last pew to catch a glimpse of Ken in front. There he was, standing tall and stately in his formal attire. I saw him looking for me, craning his neck to try to see me. My face flushed, and I suddenly couldn't wait to be with him. I had seen my beloved. The love in Ken's face had washed away all my feelings of unworthiness. I was his pure and perfect bride, and that is what we have to look forward to. There will come a day when we will see Jesus for the first time, and the love in his face will wash away any fears, any doubts, any regrets, any memory of the terrible things we've done as he wipes away the tears in our eyes. Let me just close with this. Richard Foster, another Christian author I have a lot of admiration for. He had a son, has a son named Nathan, uh, who wrote a book not long ago about the church. And he said, he, he starts it by talking about this conversation that he had with his dad. He's a young adult and they're driving together somewhere and he just blurts out, he says, dad, I hate church. I hate going to church. It's nothing against God, I just don't see the point. Thought his father was gonna be angry, defensive, but instead his dad said, I, I get you, son. I mean, the church can be disappointing sometimes. So he felt bold enough to say what was on his mind. He had this little prepared spiel. He said, okay, well, so since Jesus paid such great attention to the poor and the disenfranchised, well, then why isn't the church the world's epicenter for racial and social and economic justice? And I've found more grace and love and worn out folks at the local bar than those in the pew. I'm sure he thought his dad was gonna say, wait a second, you go to bars? But he didn't, he just let him go on. Instead of allowing our pastors to be real human beings with real problems, we prefer some sort of overworked rock stars. Again, his father said, well, you've put a lot of thought into this. You express your thoughts very well. And that was the start of a dialogue between father and son. And it didn't end that day. They kept coming back to it day after day, periodically from time to time. And it went on for months. And over time, Nathan began to see that his 
frustrations with the local church were not wrong. I mean, listen, y'all. A church is not a museum for saints. It's a hospital for sinners. You don't come into a hospital for sinners and think that everybody's gonna act the way they should. It doesn't work that way. As Nathan himself wrote, regardless of how it's defined, I learned that the church is simply a collection of broken people recklessly loved by God. Jesus said he came for the sick, not the healthy, and certainly our churches reflect that. I, y'all better just pray I never write a book. Don't worry. I'll change all the names. But listen, stuff happens in the church that just makes you shake your head. Not just First Baptist. I mean, every church I've ever been a part of because churches are full of sinners and people behave badly sometimes. And it is not wrong to complain about that. It is not wrong to speak out about that. In fact, that needs to happen. But the question is, are you speaking out from a position of love for the bride of Christ or a position of antagonism? What Nathan Foster realized is the answer to the problems is not to leave in anger, but to change things from the inside out of a motive of love. So again, when you're discouraged, when you're upset, when you're disappointed with the local church, whether it's First Baptist Conroe or wherever God should take you, the answer is not, I'm done. I'm walking away. The answer is the same it would be, the same as it would be if you had a friend whose wife was, was struggling and you wanted to talk to him about it. You would speak from a place of love, loving concern, not arrogance, not anger. You would want him to know, I love your wife. She's important to me because she's important to you. But let me tell you what's worrying me about her. That should always be our stance when we're hurt, when we're wounded, when we're disappointed with God's bride because this is the bride of Christ. He died for us. We have salvation only because of him and if we wanna say thank you and we should, one of the best ways we can do that is by loving his bride and being as committed to her as he is.